This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'd like to start out today's program by citing a good friend of mine, Kevin, who has a very colorful way of looking at things from time to time, and one of his favorite descriptions when something is in the news that's, that appears to be a deliberately constructed distraction to more grave news, he refers to it as the Your Shoes Untied movement. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Your Shoes Untied maneuver, I think it was kind of a staple in a lot of old cartoons I grew up with, or, or maybe Three Stooges type antics, wherein the confrontation is looming and one of the protagonists points out to the other one, hey, your shoe's untied. As the dope then looks down to address the issue, he gets clobbered. I was reminded of this when I, and I read how recently, to much, much ado in the media, that Facebook is now changing its name to Meta. Someone pointed out to me, and I can't confirm this, that in Yiddish, the term meta means death. I hope someone can correct me on the language on that at info at radioparallax.com if I'm incorrect. Or if I'm correct and they'd like to uh, expand upon the story. Now, I do foresee a problem with this right away. When you drive over the Dumbarton Bridge and you pass Facebook's international headquarters, where they've always had a thumbs up on a large poster, you will sometimes find as many as 30 or 40 numbskulls standing in line to take their picture in front of the thumb that is up. My understanding is now there's no longer a thumbs up, and they've replaced it with this with this oddball sort of, you know, figure eight-like, infinity-like, I don't know, symbol. I don't know, maybe now when you drive by in the future, instead of having people standing there with a thumbs up, instead of the thumbs up, Maybe folks will line up against one another and sort of imitate hula hoops with their arms to, to simulate the symbol that you're seeing on the poster. I hope we see that. I must confess to, on many occasions, having driven by the, the idiots standing out there honking my horn and yelling at them, Get a life! Oh, that was you? Yeah, that was me. But apparently Mark Zuckerberg uh, has noted that... Um, Facebook is, is sort of in trouble. In, in, his, in his way of looking at it, they're in trouble. And in his way of looking at it, they're in trouble because they're rapidly losing the attention of teenagers and 20-somethings. So he wants to move into the metaverse instead, where young people will strap on an Oculus headset instead of watching TikTok videos, and, you know, and they'll just enter a new world and perhaps never come out of it. It might be preferred if they never return to the real world, but we probably won't be that lucky. But anyway, you may, as you may have noticed, Facebook's been in a little bit of hot water lately, and, and, and so I think this, this whole move to being meta is, is really, hey, your shoe's untied. Writing about this in TheAtlantic.com, Ethan Zuckerman noted that Zuckerberg is reaching out because, well, he's out of ideas. He knows he needs to fix Facebook, but the problems he sees aren't the ones the rest of us do. Zuckerberg is not humbled by the problem of Russian disinformation or the spread of anti-vax misinformation or challenges to how Instagram affects teen body images. No, he's humbled by how hard it is to fight against Apple and Google. Said the CEO, over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company and I want to anchor our work and identify on what we're building towards. And I guess what they're heading towards is a shared online 3D virtual space 
that num- the number of countries are in- the number of companies are interested in to create a sort of um, future version of the internet that you're inside of, like Tron, I guess. Zuckerberg wrote a letter announcing the rebranding and said, In this future, you'll be able to teleport instantly as a hologram, to be at the office without a commute, at a concert with friends, or in your parents' living room to catch up. So really, this is kind of a pro-family move. You can visit your folks, not by getting in the car or taking an airplane to go check in on them. No, you just put on an Oculus virtual reality system, and then virtually visit your parents. Now, depending on the parents in question, that might not be a bad idea. But really, is this the way of the future? Let's back up a little bit off of your shoes untied and just kind of review a little bit of where we stand. We as a society stand with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. In recent months, a number of documents have surfaced and a lot of whistleblowers have surfaced related to Facebook which, notes Adrian LaFrance in TheAtlantic.com, leave little room for doubt about Facebook's crucial role in advancing the cause of authoritarianism in America and around the world. Employees alarmed at Facebook's lack of a moral compass pleaded with the company to address how its algorithms amplify extremism and misinformation and encourage hatred and polarization. Again and again, they were ignored. In the United States, documents revealed that Facebook executives deliberately allowed right-wing websites such as Breitbart and the Daily Wire to violate content rules by posting false or incendiary material for fear that sanctioning them would unleash retaliation by conservatives or former President Donald J. Trump. Remember him? In some documents, employees expressed disgust about Facebook's role in the January 6th Capitol invasion and its use by QAnon followers and Trump supporters to spread misinformation about the election and calls to violence. Wrote one staffer, we've been fueling this fire for a long time now, and we shouldn't be surprised it's now out of control. The Sacramento Bee noted in an editorial, revelations about how Facebook platforms can spread misinformation and undermine democracy keep coming. Now we learn how its lax security safeguards, in quotes, following last year's election, allowed the undemocratic lunacy that led to the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to fester. Facebook deserves all the public scorn it has earned. Well, that's true, but here at Radio Parallax, we'd like to add a little more. It's something that perhaps did not get the attention that it deserves. The East Bay Times noted recently, as of last month, October, that Facebook is going to have to pay $4.7 million in fines and up to 9 $0.5 million to victims in order to settle with the U.S. Department of Justice. Of course, $4 million, bucks, $9 million, bucks, oh my God, it might take them 15 minutes to make that back. But the U.S. Department of Justice actually got off its ass and decided to sue Facebook over allegations that the company discriminated against U.S. workers in favor of foreign temporary visa holders. The DOJ sued Facebook last December for alleging that U.S. workers were being discriminated against and the company reserved positions for foreign workers on the H-1B visa from January 2018 to at least September 2019. About 2,600 positions, and this is the part I like best, at an average of $156,000 per year were allegedly set aside for foreign workers while using the Permanent Labor Certification Program, PERM. So think about it. A lot of people have noted that uh, the big tech companies are disemploying people all across the country by 
allowing corporate America to fire people and use their tech instead. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. If you're an American working, apparently, at least for Facebook, they would prefer that, uh, well, that you were not hired in lieu of somebody that was on an H-1B visa. Now, why would that be? Well, I suspect because even at $156,000, you're probably paying less for the foreign worker. And if he gives you any grief, well, you know, there's always that plane trip back to Bangalore. And rather than make that long, lonely flight back to Dhaka or Bangalore or Hyderabad, you're probably going to do what the company wants you to do, don't you think? They did note in the coverage of this that the settlement marked the largest back pay and civil penalty award in the 35-year-old history of the enforcement of the anti-discrimination rules under the Immigration and Nationality Act. To which I say, really? $13 million? That's the best you've done in 35 years? Yow! God, you probably saved that by, you know, 500 of those 2,600 people. I don't know. I didn't do the math. But, you know, it, just, it isn't just happening in America. There are lots of places where Facebook has a, a tremendous influence on the populace. My understanding, and I don't quite understand technically why this should be, but my understanding is that in places like the Philippines, most of the population accesses the Internet through Facebook. And uh, what are they doing? And in these other countries, well, a lot of the same stuff that led up to the January 6th insurrection, apparently, uh, writing in the Gazeta y Borza, a man named Peter Stozak noted that in Poland, we know how far the far-right Confederation Party radicalized and did so so quickly. Well, it had Facebook's help. In this case, they're citing the conclusion of a Washington Post analysis of leaked internal documents from the social media giant. In 2018... Facebook changed its algorithm to promote what it called engaging content, in part by giving posts that had an angry emoji five times the reach of those with mere likes. That publicity rewarded the once fringe confederation, which traffics in anti-immigration and anti-vaccine content in Poland, and went from holding zero seats in parliament to 11 in just one year. Both the ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party and the centrist opposition civic platform have complained to Facebook representatives that the company's algorithm is creating an atmosphere of societal civil war online. Gee, you think? Anyway, like a lot of people, we will continue to monitor the misbehavior of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and big tech in general and report on it when we see the need. And we're going to see the need quite often, I'm sad to note. And you know, the nice thing about this radio program, at least we, we think one of the nice things about this radio program is that we can talk about whatever the hell we want, whenever the hell we want to. And using that as a guide, Radio Parallax is now going to delve into the death of a president and how the story that you've heard about it may not be correct. And in this case, I'm not referring to something that we've talked about a great deal on the show, the passing of the 35th president, John F. Kennedy. No, we're going to go back in time and we're going to address what really happened to William Henry Harrison, America's ninth president. And we know a lot of you are saying, oh, and it's high time. Now, if, if the name William Henry Harrison isn't ringing the bell that it probably should, let's note that you, you are familiar, no doubt, with what is possibly the most famous campaign slogan in American history, which in this case was Tippy Canoe and Tyler Two. Now, to refresh our view of American history, we need to go back to the early days of the Republic when the Founding Fathers were still in charge. We would note by way of review that George Washington, John Adams, 
Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe were our first five presidents, and we're all there. We're all present at the creation. Our sixth president was John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, so he was sort of, you know, in there by proxy. Political parties did not dominate uh, the scene the way they would soon do. A lot of our founding fathers thought that if we ever get political parties entrenched in this country, we are screwed. And in that, they were, of course, entirely correct. It's also pretty well known that in the early days of the Republic, they did not have quite the uh, um, same attitude about everybody having a vote. It was a given that you weren't going to vote if you're black, because you were a slave, pretty much. It was a given you weren't going to vote if you're a woman. And surprisingly, it was pretty much a given that you weren't going to vote if you didn't own land. But as the country expanded to the West, away from the original 13 colonies, and more and more folks were brought on board, and the vote was sort of extended to others, it became clear that an ability to sway the masses would be critical in gaining power in the country. So it was that back in 1828, when Andrew Jackson, the guy you see in the $20 bill, managed to become president... He did so because he was sort of a folk hero. He was the, supposedly the, the victor in the last battle fought in the War of 1812. He was apparently the leader of a force down there somewhere in New Orleans that shot up a whole bunch of British soldiers. Even though, as luck would have it, it would turn out in the long run, the war had already ended. They just didn't know it yet. The Democratic Party likes to hold up Jefferson and Jackson as, as two of its uh, founders. But the truth is, shortly before he died in 18. 18- 26, I believe it was, uh, when Thomas Jefferson got word that Andrew Jackson was going to be a candidate for the presidency, he commented words to the effect of he couldn't think of anybody less qualified to be president than General Jackson. <laughs> but nevertheless, this idea of being a, a, a popular war hero did seem to resonate with the public. So after eight years of Jackson in the White House, followed by four years of his vice president making it, in his stead, in this case, Martin Van Buren. Well, when 1840 rolled around, they they decided the Whig Party in this case, which had sort of arisen to counter the, let's just call it the Democratic Party. They looked around to run a general. The general that they focused on was William Henry Harrison. Now, he'd not fought, you know, in a war like the War of 1812. He'd been sent out west to fight Indians. Now, when guys with muskets and cannon and horses show up to evict people living on the land who have bows and arrows, well, generally, it wasn't much of a fight. Nevertheless, by virtue of his prevailing in some rather undistinguished conflict uh, near, I guess, the Tippecanoe River or something like that, Harrison got the nickname Tippecanoe. And, you know, nicknames, they do kind of resonate with the public as well. At any rate, what was then the Whig Party put William Henry Harrison forth as their candidate, and he won. He was 68 years old when he assumed office in March of 1841, making him the oldest president, at least up until the era of Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. And when I was back in the third grade and was given a book of the presidents, and to, which I memorized at that time, I was always struck by the weirdness of William Henry Harrison. He was only president for a month, the shortest term by far of any president of the United States. And the story was Back in the day and up, up till I would say very recently, the story was that Harrison sort of brought upon his own death by going out on Inauguration Day and delivering what is still the longest speech ever delivered by a president-elect becoming president. 
Although it was reportedly a miserably cold and wet day, Harrison delivered his nearly two-hour inaugural address outdoors in the freezing cold without putting on a hat, gloves, or overcoat. So according to the traditional story, he took a chill, which turned into a bad cold and then into pneumonia, and which wound up killing him a month after he took office. That's what I was taught back when I was a young lad, and what probably a lot of you learned, if any of you actually learned this story, and I'm betting most of you didn't. But anyway, now Mr. McMillan says, you know, he knew the story, so don't, 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 don't act like that. Okay, okay I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's the fault of anybody <laughs> that they're ignorant of this particular part of history. It's just not, it ain't a big deal. The president went out, he got cold, he took a chill, he got pneumonia, and he died. Well, that's what I thought when I was eight years old, but that's before I went to medical school. Now that I've gone to medical school and, and have a copy of Uncle John's actual and factual bathroom reader, the 31st in the series of the, <laughs> the Tried and True Bathroom Readers Institute's publications, it's time for a review. President Harrison's physician, Thomas Miller, cited the cause of death as pneumonia of the lower lobe of the right lung complicated by congestion of the liver. But he himself admitted that he chose a pneumonia diagnosis as a matter of expediency as much as anything else, saying, quote, as this was the most palpable affection, the term pneumonia afforded a succinct and intelligible answer to the innumerable questions as to the nature of the attack. That's waffle words if I've ever heard them. Now, in 2014, this got a second look. Jane McHugh, a writer, and Dr. Philip McCulliac, a physician on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Medicine, took a look back at what happened. They published an article in the medical journal Clinical Infectious Diseases and re-examined the case with a modern scientific eye. Now, Dr. Miller left a detailed account of Harrison's final illness. He reported that the president first complained of anxiety and fatigue, not a cold, anxiety and fatigue on March 26, three weeks after his inauguration, which seems way too late for bad weather on inauguration day to have played a role in any part of the illness. Miller told the president to go to bed. When he checked on him later that evening, Harrison reported feeling much better. But the next day, he complained he had a severe chill and constipation. The doctor prescribed laxatives, naturally, and other treatments, including medicine called Mars Hindarg, which contained mercury. Over the next several days, Harrison's condition deteriorated. He became feverish. He developed severe gastrointestinal pain, then developed breathing problems made worse by a cough that was sometimes wet and sometimes dry. Miller, for his part, good doctor, prescribes enemas and more laxatives and some opium to control Harrison's pain. It didn't work. By April 3rd, Miller noted that Harrison was near death, his pulse sinking, extremities blue and cold. He lingered throughout the day. And then shortly past midnight on the morning of April 4th, he died without a groan or struggle. In their 2014 article, McHugh and Makawiak note that while Harrison's lungs were clearly impacted by whatever it was that was affecting him, his pulmonary symptoms didn't arise until the fifth day of his illness, which was three weeks after the inauguration, and they were intermittent rather than progressive. His gastrointestinal complaints by comparison began on the third day of the illness and were relentless as well as progressive. Based on these facts, they concluded that Harrison's pneumonia was a secondary diagnosis, not what killed him. So what did kill him? Their candidates are either typhoid fever or paratyphoid fever, both of which are caused by exposure to strains of salmonella in drinking water, contaminated, when you know it, by human waste. Collectively, these diseases are known as enteric fevers because they cause tremendous GI distress. 
One of the tools they used in this diagnosis was an 1846 street map of Washington, D.C. In those days, Washington had no sewage treatment system whatsoever. The sewage pipes of some buildings emptied their contents onto a vacant lot not far from the White House where they stagnated in pools. Yikes. Other buildings in the city were serviced by waste collectors who carted what was called night soil onto a dumping ground just seven blocks from the natural springs that provided water to the White House. Oh my. Seven blocks uphill from the natural springs meant that any of the waste in the dumping ground might contain the salmonella bacteria which could have flowed downstream, contaminating the White House's source of drinking water. One way or the other, McHugh and McCowayak believed that President William Henry Harrison ingested contaminated water and fell ill. Anyway, as a physician, I, I can't say that I, you know, fully back this diagnosis. It's quite reasonable, and it certainly makes a hell of a lot more sense than the fact that he died from pneumonia because he, quote, caught a chill by giving a speech for too long on a cold day. We can put that one to bed, I think, safely. I think it's probably a good idea for any physician looking back historically to not dwell too much on the kind of treatments and diagnoses and things that were being done to folks back in the day. Another president who died at the hands of his physicians, in this case, James Garfield, is kind of a case in point. This was 1880, and at the trial of the accused assassin, the man who without a doubt shot James Garfield, Charles Guiteau, Guiteau offered the following (laughs) excuse. Well, I shot Garfield, he said, but his doctors killed him. And I'm here to say if you take the time, and I hope you don't, to look back at what happened to poor President Garfield, you would agree that it was his doctors that killed him. All right, since we're taking a look back in history, let's, uh, let's, let's go to the November issue of Smithsonian Magazine, shall we? Here's a brief piece that appears in the issue by Andrew Roberts titled, In Defense of King George. Notes that the author of a new biography shines a humane light on the monarch which was so despised by the American colonists. Evidently, since 2015, Queen Elizabeth II has released more than 100,000 pages of documents in the royal archives related to George III. And, notes Andrew Roberts, they reveal a startling new picture of the last king of America. And it's about as far removed as possible from the description of George in the Declaration of Independence. For example, George III fervently denounced slavery in the colonies. Here's a vivid quote. The pretexts used by the Spaniards for enslaving the New World were extremely curious, said George. The propagation of the Christian religion was the first reason. The next was the indigenous Americans differing from them in color, manners, and customs, all of which are too absurd to take the trouble of refuting. George III never owned slaves himself, unlike our first president and third president, and gave his assent to the legislation that abolished the slave trade in England in 1807. We should note by contrast that no fewer than 41 of the 56 signatories to our Declaration of Independence were slave owners. The Declaration established this myth that George III was a tyrant. Turns out he was kind of the epitome of a constitutional monarch, deeply conscientious about the limits of his power. He never vetoed a single act of parliament, nor did he have any hopes or plans to establish anything approaching tyranny over his American colonies, which were among the freest societies in the world at the time of the American Revolution? Newspapers were uncensored. There were rarely troops in the streets, and the subjects of the 13 colonies enjoyed greater rights and liberties under the law than any comparable European country of the day. This is something to contemplate next July 4th. George III, maybe not such a bad guy. 
That same issue of the Smithsonian uh, touched upon it, actually touched upon at great length on a subject that we've made passing mention of on this program in the past, which was the subject of garum. Garum was a fish sauce, what's beloved in the Roman Empire. We have today many recipes which contain garum as an ingredient, which have been passed to posterity by the Romans. We know that they love the stuff, couldn't get enough of the stuff. There were factories for manufacturing it all over the Roman Empire, and there were ships dedicated to transporting it to Rome and to other cities where the upper class could enjoy it. To quote from the piece by Taras Gresco, you know, anybody named Taras Gresco, I think, is the kind of guy we should be quoting. <laughs> Mr. Mill notes that it does just reek of authority. Notes the piece. Garum has long been considered the dodo of gastronomic history. The fishy sauce was beloved by the ancient Greeks and Romans, but until recently, classicists believed it to be extinct as the flightless birds of Mauritius. Garum hardly sounds like something that would tempt 21st century taste buds. Many recipes referring to its construction that survived from antiquity call for allowing fish to putrefy in open vats under the Mediterranean sun for up to three months. Complicating matters, the term could refer to both a sauce used in the cooking process, sometimes also called liquamen, and to a condiment made with the blood and viscera of fish. I know this is not starting out very appetizing, is it? Well, anyway... It turns out that archaeologists have now excavated concrete vats used for making garum. Well, they've done so from, from Tunisia to France. But evidently, coming up with some organic remains were harder to come by. But in 2009, Italian researchers discovered six sealed clay storage vessels in a building that modern scholars have dubbed the Garum Shop at Pompeii. Food technicians from the University of Cadiz and Seville have analyzed those charred, powdered remains from Pompeii, and using that information, and guided by the liquamen recipes thought to have been written in the 3rd century AD, calling for heavily salted small fish to be fermented with dill, coriander, fennel, and other dried herbs in a closed vessel for one week, well, they produced what they claim is the first scientific recreation of garum in 2,000 years. Now, apparently the trick in this is figuring out, you know, how to mix the fish, <laughs> the, I don't want to say putrefying fish, the processed fish, along with the herbs. Um, but, you know, they've made some wax at it. They've got something that's probably a pretty decent approximation of it. And in certain restaurants now, you can enjoy garum with your meal. I must confess to being very curious about the taste of garum and, and, and perhaps in the weeks and months and maybe years to come, we'll see if we can try some out. And by the way, in a bit of historical trivia, it was the Chinese version of fish sauce, which apparently you still can buy uh, in commercial products, which somehow got mixed up with sauce made from tomatoes. And the name of the fish sauce was corrupted into catsup or ketchup. Mr. Miller points out that Worcestershire sauce apparently has some fish in it. Let me check. Yes, I've got a bottle in my hand here from the local cabinet here in the kitchen, and the ingredients of this bottle of Worcestershire sauce, the Lee and Perrin brand, appears to be water, vinegar, molasses, corn sweeteners, and anchovies and or sardines. Wow. I guess we're going to have to compare uh, some Worcestershire to uh, whatever garum we can find. Anyway, I'm keen to talk about yet another article which has uh, fascinated me. This is on the subject of The New Meth by Sam Canonis, which appeared in The Atlantic, but we don't have time to do that right now. We need, in fact, to take a break. Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.